Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to continue with the Gospel according to St. Matthew, this time the 25th chapter, the 1st to the 13th verse. It's a simple gospel, and in many, many ways, of course, the, the lesson is very clear. It's a parable, but there's also um, implications in it which it might do well for us to kind of explore, that we might be able to reflect a little bit uh, more broadly, a little bit more deeply into the, to the actual meaning of what is behind Jesus' words. And so it begins, Jesus told this parable to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were sensible. The foolish ones did take their lamps, but they brought no oil, whereas the sensible ones took flasks of oil as well as their lamps. The bridegroom was late, and they all grew drowsy and they fell asleep. But at midnight there was a cry, The bridegroom is here, go out and meet him. At this, all those bridesmaids woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the sensible ones, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise ones, sensible ones, replied, There may not be enough for us and for yourselves. You had better go to those who sell it and buy some. They had gone off to buy it when the bridegroom arrived, and those who were ready went with him to the wedding hall and the door was closed. The other bridesmaids arrived later. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you solemnly, I do not know you. So stay awake, because you do not know either the day or the hour. Well, there's certain things here that would be helpful for us to understand, and part of that is the marriage customs of ancient Israel. What would happen is a bride, of course, would be prepared in her own home, and uh, her bridesmaids would be with her. And when the time came when the groom had uh, finished partying or celebrating with his male friends, then the groom and all of his friends would start to come to the bride's house, and the announcement would go out. And the bridesmaids would then come out and meet the crowd and escort them to the bride. Basically, now, Jesus is using the bridegroom as an image of the second coming. He's using the bridegroom as the image of himself at a future time. And he is explaining now what happens with the church. The bridesmaids are the church, and that some within the church are prepared for the return of the Lord, and some are indifferent and sloppy about it. They go off on their own become indifferent. And when the Lord then comes, when the bridegroom comes, only the ones that are prepared are the ones who are able to go out and meet him. The rest of them are closed out of the kingdom, and the Lord says to them, I do not know you. It is here now that the Gospel of Matthew takes a turn toward the end times, that we are aware of the fact also, even liturgically, that when this gospel is used, it comes near the end of the liturgical year, as the focus of the church then begins to change from the active mission of Jesus Christ, from the active um, life and activity of the Lord, 
to where he preaches and teaches and heals and so forth, and therefore manifests into the world who the Messiah is, what the Messiah can do, and invites his followers to come after him, to trust him, and to go where he goes. Now the Gospels are going to shift to where Jesus is preparing now to leave this earthly life, and uh, he's beginning now to explain and to show what happens to those that are left behind. And I think that, you know, as we look at this and as we look at the modern church, we begin to understand kind of the universal implications of this parable. For the church is the one who in the world, in time and in history, is preparing for the coming of the bridegroom, preparing for the second coming of the Lord. We realize that the life on this earth is not necessarily in any way, shape, or form here a permanent reality. Um, even though in our society we disguise death as much as possible, and we become actually indifferent to it through our total indifference to human life. In the, in the abortion, in the mutilation of children, in the violence in the streets, and so forth, um, in the ghastly wars that go on, we find a total indifference to human life. And in that total indifference to human life is a total indifference to the work of God, to the work of the Lord. It is actually an insult to the Creator, who is the Lord of the living and the dead, who is the Lord of life and death. Um, we come into the world because of him, and we leave the world under his guidance and under his protection. And so if we are prepared when he comes, then we may rush out to meet him with our lamps filled with oil, our wicks trimmed, in other words, ready for the procession into the wedding hall, into the kingdom of heaven. If we have been sloppy, if we have been indifferent, if we really, you know, join the church, are part of the church, but really don't much care about the faith, and that might sound like, you know, well, how can you say so? Well, because it's everywhere. We certainly, we certainly see it even in the, uh, the electoral process in the United States. They talk about a Catholic vote. Well, there's not a Catholic vote. It's split. And whenever life issues come up, almost half of the Catholics vote against life. They vote in favor of death. They vote in favor of the autonomy of the human person. They vote against the fact that the Lord is creator, the Lord is redeemer, and are satisfied with themselves that they have done something noble or just because they have exercised human freedom um, at the cost, of course, of other people's lives. I think that we, we find, without getting terribly political, but we find, um, I guess maybe this is, but it's an example. For instance, is uh, one of the uh, leading senators said not so long ago concerning the war in the Ukraine that it's the best money that America has spent. We have, you know, we have um, attempted to debilitate Russia and not lost a single American life totally indifferent to the approximately half a million Ukrainian lives that it has cost. And yet those are, are of no consequence to this man. Um, and yet they are God's children. He has created them. He loves them. He wants them with him forever in paradise. This is not something that even crosses the mindset of the modern anti-Christian person. It's shocking, that kind of indifference to human carnage. 
um, we find the same thing in the abortion boats that are going on across the country. No one is saying that the idea of women in great difficulty face enormously difficult decisions, that oftentimes there are many factors involved in their lives and that it can be basically a, a horrifying experience to see their whole future crumble before them. And yet, at the same time, cavalierly, um, many people of the church simply vote pro-choice. And you can't do that. The, the, the emphasis is on the care of human life, woman, mother, child, and so forth. And there is a great movement to attempt to remove the term mother from the whole abortion question. But you can't really do that because biologically the woman is the mother to the child. So there's all these kinds of things. And uh, you know, the accusation can be, well, you know, the church is just concerned about sexuality. Well, I'm sorry, but war is not a sexual issue. And yet, somehow or other, Christian nations seem to have little problem with it. If we look back at the scandal of the First World War, with the exception of the Ottoman Empire, it was Christian on Christian. And what does that have to do with faith in Jesus Christ when you kill each other? There is no question force must be used to protect human life. Um, we think only, for instance, of the, the death camps of Nazi Germany where, where, where 12 million people were killed, half of them Jews, the rest Slavs, homosexuals, mentally deficient, and so forth. Is it therefore right to try and stop that kind of thing by force? Probably so. Um, we also have, for instance, in ancient times, the coming of, of the Moors into Europe. You know, within a within hundred years, they had swept from Saudi Arabia, from Arabia into uh, North Africa, destroying up to as many as 20,000 Christian churches into Spain and so forth, and up into France, up into Tours in France. Was it legitimate for Charles Martel to meet them and try to defeat their progress into Europe? Probably so. But are most of our wars, do they make any sense? Probably not. Probably they're about egos, and probably they're about power things, and probably they're about cultural realities or something. But they're seldom about issues that really, really are a matter of life and death for huge numbers of people. But enough, basically, is simply to point out the fact that those who do not bring oil for their lamps are those who do not support the reality and the truth of the living God as the creator of the world, the maintainer of the world, and the redeemer of the world, who want to usurp God's power into their own hands, into their own minds. And certainly this was the sin of Eve. The snake said to her, the serpent said to her, you know why God doesn't want you to eat that apple? He doesn't want you to eat that apple because then you'll be just like him. And Eve thought to herself, what a good thing that would be. I could be God. And so she eats the apple. And so too do many people of the church eat the apple and say, isn't it great that I can play God in the midst of the world? Isn't it great that I can usurp his position and usurp his power? That I can kill people? That I can determine who, where, who has life and who doesn't? That I can, in some way, shape, or form, determine the future of someone by cutting it off completely and never allowing it to find itself, to have a freedom of development, to have a freedom of growth, 
to have a freedom of the experience of life as a human, as a child of God. Isn't that remarkable that I can do that? And so the sin of Eve persists into the modern world. As it does so persist into the modern world, it gathers to itself its crowd. And that crowd are the bridesmaids who in fact have no oil in their lamps. They are the ones who somehow or other claim, place a claim on the living God, and yet within themselves are empty and hollow. They have no relationship with him whatsoever, for they have played his role and they have attempted to usurp his position as Lord. All of this then points all of us together as we move beyond now the, the senseless ones, the foolish ones, the ones who want to play the game but don't want to do what it takes to play it well. Um, and, and it turns our attention then away from, away from the crowd and toward the promise of the living God. You know that part of the issue with every culture and every age and time is that there is a total and absolute investment in the future and the whole idea of the in the present and the whole idea of a future is something that is not part of a culture part of a consciousness and so people sink their anchors deep into the present and as the present slips away there is oftentimes resistance there is oftentimes panic there is oftentimes great fear, the fear of growing old, the fear of getting sick, the fear of dying, all of those things. They are the constant reminder within the modern world of the fragility of human life and of the fragility of our existence, of the fragility of the structures of the world. We have had great empire upon great empire upon great empire which has, through the indifference and the, and the self-seeking of its people, each of them in their own time, in their own way, have disintegrated and passed away. Certainly there are many disintegrative forces um, alive and well within our society, within the great empire of America, and, uh, and its cause for concern. And there is no five-year plan that's going to save that reality. There is only going to be a conversion of heart and a return to what it really means to be a human person. And that eludes us in the modern age. Whatever the future might bring, will it bring the great conversion? Will it bring the openness of humanity to the living God? Or will it continue to leave its lamps empty and will it continue to disintegrate into darkness, into chaos, into anarchy? We, that all remains to be seen. But all of it is, a matter of fact, is secondary to the ultimate question and the ultimate goal of the human family, of the human person. For we are created not just for this world, but we are created for eternity. And what eternity turns out to be for us has some dependency on how we live our life in the present age. This is one of the dangers that came into our world through the destruction of the notion of participation in grace. And that took place radically and primarily in the 16th century in Europe, 
when, in fact, it was decided in the reforming um, movements that we had nothing to do with our salvation. How you would interpret this particular text in the light of us having no responsibility, I'm not sure. Because certainly here, Jesus is saying, yes, you have a responsibility to be prepared. And part of preparation is to cooperate with grace. God gives us the grace of St. Francis. And interesting, St. Francis makes this very clear. The Lord Jesus has come and has redeemed humanity. But salvation, which means that we all have an opportunity to be saved, but salvation depends upon our cooperation with the grace of redemption that the Lord pours out and into our hearts. So Francis makes a big distinction between the redemption of the world and personal salvation. That would seem to be very much in line with today's parable that there were those, all of them were given the invitation, but only half of them prepared themselves to accept it. The rest of them grew indifferent to the invitation and looked after their own interests and their own needs rather than moving forward into the kingdom that the Lord had promised. And I think, too, that we have a hard time understanding often what it really kind of means to participate in the grace of salvation. And I think that as Catholics, we look soundly and firmly and anxiously back into the means that the Lord has given us in order that we might be enabled to participate. Might we say that grace enables us? Yes, we might say that. And so then why do we argue then with, for instance, the Luther's position that we are saved by grace alone? The scriptures say we are saved by grace. Luther is the one that added alone. We are not saved by grace alone, but grace is the foundation of our salvation. And here is where we can use the explanation of St. Francis. The grace that we receive for salvation we call redemption. Jesus has won for us freedom from sin. He has won for us accessibility to the kingdom. He has won for us the possibility of salvation. Then, in that platform of grace, he has reinforced that platform of grace. He has strengthened that with the gift of the sacraments. And so it is in the sacraments, then, that the church becomes the instrument of our salvation. There's a great deal of discussion and a great deal of resistance to this idea that the church plays a role in our salvation. But it does so very much, and it does so by being the dispenser of the sacraments, the protector, the holder of the sacraments. For it is therefore, as we go through them, it is therefore baptism which enables us to receive the grace of redemption. It is the Eucharist which unites us with the source of salvation. It is confirmation which gives us the strength to pursue. It is in the sacrament of marriage where human love is supposed to expand and to be open to the transcendent and desires of the transcendent. It is in holy orders that the implementation of the means of grace are provided for the church where the Mass is celebrated, the Eucharist is celebrated, penance is celebrated, the anointing of the sick is celebrated, and so on and so forth. And then 
we find also as we move on the ability to every time we fall to rise up again through the sacrament of reconciliation. We find too in times of physical illness and danger of death the presence of the Lord and the forgiveness of sins and then oftentimes the healing of the body. We find all of those things, all of those things that uh, become the means by which we climb the ladder of salvation, the means by which we fill our lamps with the oil of response, the oil of responsibility, the oil of responding to the, uh, to the grace of salvation offered to us by the living God. And so when we find then those in this parable have, who have refused to utilize the means of grace available to us to enable us to fill our lamps with oil, to enable us to respond to the gifts of grace, the grace of salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do not respond to that, when we say, well, I don't need to baptize my child, I don't need to get married sacramentally, I, I don't need to, uh, to go to, to, to mass, I don't need the sacraments, I don't need any of that. After all, we go back to the same kind of barbaric conclusion. Well, after all, God is good. God loves me. I'll be all right. Well, that kind of presumption, we don't know the truth of that. What we do know is it's not what the Lord said in the scriptures. It's not what the Lord has concretely and existentially given to us to uh, help ourselves and participate in this gift of salvation. You know, we talk about grace and we say grace alone. The, the, the Luther says grace alone. We say by grace, yeah, the grace of redemption, the grace of the sacraments, all of those things are instrumental in our salvation. But it's very clear from this parable that not everybody makes use of that. Not everybody uses that. And, and I think that it, once again, it does us, it's good for us to reflect upon what is the meaning of grace. It is gratia in Latin, it is charis in Greek, and it means simply love. It is God's love for us. Love is never non-relational. Love is never non-reciprocal. And so with the enormity of God's love pouring into our lives through the grace of redemption and the use of the sacraments for salvation, there must be on our part a relational response or that grace falls on dead ground, on, on rocky ground, and the seed dies. It's critical and it's crucial that we respond because what we're responding to is someone else's love for us. And that as inadequate as we are to respond to infinite love, we are given the means to do so. We are given the means to be able in every way to respond to God through the grace of the sacraments, through our growing together with him ever more deeply and ever more wonderfully in his love for us, his light within us, his illumination of our hearts and our minds, and his great gift of hope and of salvation. How joyful it will be if when the bridegroom comes, we with our lamps filled could go out to meet him and be with him then forever in the great banquet of hall of heaven, in the great wedding feast of the Lamb. This is what the parable is all about. And the truth of it is stark 
the truth of it is embedded deep within the contemporary world. We hopefully have looked at some of those examples, the examples of cooperation, of response, of relationality versus the sin of Eve, which travels with us throughout time and which is very much present to us today. Let us not be guilty of that sin and let us turn humbly and devotedly to the instruments of our salvation, to the sacramental life of the church, in order that when the bridegroom comes, our lamps will be filled with oil. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.